Hello. For those of you who don't know me, I'm James. I'm one of the elders here at Centre. And it's great to be able to share with you today, although it's obviously would be much better if we could be together in person. And in many ways, I don't know about you, but for, for me at least, life has felt so much quieter um, in these last few months. I've had emptier weekends, um, quieter evenings. You know, sadly, we've had cancelled events and weddings. And yeah, in other ways, our world has been more, it seemed more chaotic, um, more noisy um, than ever before. You know, we've had the fallout of the murder of George Floyd, um, the Black Lives Matter movement. And we've been, you know, we're locked down because there's a virus going around which hasn't a cure. You know, there's job uncertainty. Um, the markets are all over the place. You know, so many things actually can confuse us and unsettle us at the moment. And something I've really been reminded by is that God's not been surprised by 2020. You know, he knew these things would play out this way. None of this is new to him. You know, God hates injustice. And his heart for justice is fierce in our Bibles. So it's absolutely right that we acknowledge that we've not stewarded God's call to justice as aggressively as he calls us to within the pages of our Bibles. And so it's right that we apologise to those it's affected. You know, racism needs to be the start of our church's mission to be more aggressive in pursuing justice the way that it's on God's heart. And the last few months, I found myself increasingly asking, God, who are you in all this? You know, amidst all the angry voices, amidst all the noise, the ugliness that is the far left and the far right. You know, God, how am I meant to make sense of these things? How do you see them? Don't make your Instagram feed a source of your wisdom or popular opinion, the authority of your life. It's too changeable. It's too unreliable. And that's why he's given us scripture. That's why God gave us, gives us our Bibles. You know, it's something timeless, something trustworthy. And that's why we open it together. We try to understand it. We try to apply it because our world needs to know the wisdom that God has given us desperately. Because it's in our Bibles that we find out who God is. We find out what he cares about, what he designed us for and how he created us to live our lives. And for us, it's that timeless wisdom that can cut through all the noise that inevitably we all feel at the moment. And if you've been joining us in the last month or so, you'll know that we've been looking at the story and the character of David, an overlooked shepherd boy who, because of his heart and his character, God chose to lead the people of Israel. And one really quick point right off the bat. When we read these accounts of godly men and women in our Bibles, our natural instinct is to read ourselves into their story. You know, who hasn't felt overlooked? Who hasn't felt misunderstood or dream of being recognised? You know, rags to riches, a promise of wealth and of power. You know, a shepherd boy given the keys to the kingdom. What's not to like? And of course, our imaginations go there. And yes, of course, there are characteristics in David's life to be inspired by. His courage, his leadership, his wisdom. But the main purpose of the story of David's life is to point us to Jesus. David is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus is the greater David, you could say. And so when we look at David, firstly, we're meant to see Jesus, not imagine ourselves.
And now we have the New Testament. We're meant to look back at the Old Testament and recognise that Jesus was who God was pointing to all along. Let me give you an example. David and Goliath. Well-known, well-known story. David faces an enemy that we couldn't face, namely our sin. He kills an enemy we couldn't kill. And it's in him whose victory we follow in. You know, and that should lead us towards humility and gratitude and ultimately worship. If we were going to read ourselves into the story of David and Goliath, you and I are the Israelites cowering on the battlefield, unable to defeat Goliath. We're not David, we're, we're the Israelites. But Jesus is our David. He comes and says, I can take your sin. I can beat an enemy that you can't beat. And that is, that's the providence where we now live and stand. And yet, last week, we saw just how far God's chosen and anointed can fall. David had taken another man's wife. He'd got her pregnant. And then because of her husband's loyalty to him, he had him premeditatedly murdered to ensure the cover-up stuck. It was calculated. It was cold. It was evil by every human standard. And initially, at least, it seems like he got away with it. He quietly married Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and nine months later, a child was born. But I bet it played on his mind. I imagine it haunted him a little bit. I imagine him restless and distracted. And then, on an unremarkable day, he received a visit from a trusted friend and that's where we're going to pick up uh, scripture so just going to pick up we're going to read 2 Samuel 12 1 to 13 and the Lord sent Nathan to David he came to him and said to him there were two men in a certain city one rich and the other poor the rich man had 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 very many flocks and herds but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had brought and he brought it up and it grew with him and with his children it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms it was like a daughter to him now there came a traveller to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him Then David's anger was greatly kindled against that man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done that deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because of because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David said, sorry, Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and has killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. 
Thus says the Lord, behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbour. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did, in, did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You see, when Nathan confronted him with a story of illustrative parallel, it says David's anger, David burned with anger. His call for justice was clear. The man who did this must die. David's conscience, his sense of right and wrong, was very much alive. And then Nathan outs him, you are that man. It must have hit him hard, but I don't think it will have hit him because he didn't know it. More because somebody else knew it too. And David's response straight after this, he says this, I have sinned against the Lord. He admitted it straight up. You see, I don't think he walked into Nathan's big reveal ignorantly. His anger at that man in the story was real. But in my mind, at least the way I can imagine it, it's probably something of a projection of a very active internal conflict between his own inner conscience and his external actions. I imagine he bottled it up over those months. I imagine it kept him awake. I can imagine that kind of guilt would have tossed him, tossed and turned at night. And I can almost imagine clouds of regret sweeping over him in those quiet moments when he'd look across the room at his stolen wife. And I imagine that exposure that Nathan brought before him must have been something of a terrifying relief. You know, all that was hidden, all that had been, uh, you know, hidden, suddenly exposed and out in the open. And something he'd seen as no option but to try and bury was suddenly laid out and laid bare. But David's sense of justice was right. Under the law, for every wrong, there needed to be a compensate, compensating measure of justice. David deserved to die. By the law, this was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That would have been fair. That would have been just. And David knew that. But in response to David's confession, in the next verse, Nathan says this. Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. You see, God showed mercy to David, a mercy he didn't deserve. And as we read this, it's meant to be a picture for us of the extent of just how far God's forgiveness and mercy can reach. David had murdered a man. He'd stolen his wife. He'd, he had plenty already, but he wanted one more. And it should make us uncomfortable. It is outrageous. It's almost offensive. Because David deserved much worse than on the face of it God gave him. And you see, as unpalatable and unfair as it might seem to us, no action of any human being on this planet is beyond the reach of the forgiveness of God. It says in Romans, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. 
You see, God's grace, his capacity for forgiveness will always outpace a human capacity for evil. And in many ways, David, you know, it's a, it's a historic Bible story and it's so easy for us to feel quite detached from it. But what of Derek Chauvin, the man who suffocated another man to death slowly in broad daylight while the world watched? And it's horrific. I couldn't watch it all. I watched a bit and I couldn't finish it because that act was he was utterly guilty. It is complete that what happened there is completely unjust in God's eyes. And it should make us justifiably angry. And yet that man is still not beyond the forgiveness of God. Not because what he didn't do was utterly disgusting, but because of who God is. You see, God condemns the behaviour, but not the person. Because in his eyes, a person's inherent value isn't equivalent to their behaviour. We make that equation, but not God. In his eyes, he is precious. We are all precious because we are all made equally in the image of God. You see, both men, David and Derek, deeply undeserving of mercy and forgiveness by any rational logic. And yet, in God's eyes, they're not beyond it. And that challenges me. That does trouble me. Because if God's orientation is one of unwavering compassion, if God's stance towards the most undeserving is of mercy, and that picture of how far mercy and forgiveness can go, then it, as frustrating as it is, it is incompatible for me in my heart to take an opposing stance towards them. Are we a people who think of God's mercy first? Or do we grab our pitchforks and join the bandwagon with the rest of the mob? Think about your own heart for a moment. How did it make you feel when injustice, like that anger is so right. And yet it can't, if we're following Jesus, that can't be the end of our reaction. We should be struck by the absurdity of God's mercy and his capacity to forgive. And that is such good news for us. Because we know that if God could take away David's sin, then we can be confident that ours is covered too. There is nothing you've done or can do where God's forgiveness cannot reach you. There is no mess you can find yourself in, nothing you can think or say that changes which can exclude you from God's forgiveness. We often only need a few quiet moments before our mind wanders to our regrets. The things that we've done, the things that we've said, the people we've hurt. Can you believe that God's forgiveness extends that far, that he forgives you for those things? A few weeks ago I was listening uh, to a sermon a friend sent me. And a line in it really uh, struck me really hard. Speaking of forgiveness and righteousness, he said this, he said, We cannot lose by our disobedience 
what we did not gain by our obedience. I'll say it again. We cannot lose by our disobedience what we did not gain by our obedience. You see, you're not made righteous by what you do. Neither can you be made unrighteous by what you do. And that's a wonderful freedom. I didn't earn the righteousness of Jesus. I wasn't born with it. It was a free gift given to me by God when I admitted I couldn't do it myself and I needed his help. You see, when God looks at you, if you've, if you've asked Jesus to be your saviour, he looks at you and he sees the perfection of Jesus, no matter what. You see, or we could put it another way, you see, your behaviour will never be powerful enough to change God's character. And so the question we have to face is, do you feel the security of God's forgiveness for you today? I don't mean the theory. I mean, do you feel the joy and the peace and the hope in your heart of that? Can you hear the Holy Spirit within you right now saying, my son, my daughter, I know what you did. And yet I see the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And if you've never heard that voice in your heart, we'd love to pray with you afterwards for that revelation of the forgiveness of God and the fullness of his grace, which will always be sufficient. Do you know that freedom of knowing that his stance towards you will never change, regardless of behaviour, past, present, future? And listen, any guilt you're feeling today is an invitation to God's freedom. That's the gospel. It's an invitation to God's freedom. He doesn't leave us in our guilt to feel miserable or dejected or disillusioned. It's an invitation to his freedom because I've, I've, I've forgiven it. But going back to David, forgiveness didn't mean without consequence. You see, God may have spared Davis, David fair justice, but there were implications to accept. God said, because of what you've done, the sword will never depart from your house. And he said that calamity would come in the future. And more immediately, Nathan said, but because of, by, by doing this, you've shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. You see, God will never punish us as we deserve. You know, that was Jesus' domain. And he bore it once, fully, for all, forever. But because of his great love for you and me, he says he will discipline us. A few verses, um, and there's a verse in Hebrews, and it says, Endure hardship as discipline, for God is treating you as his children. And you see, what he's saying is God loves you too much not to discipline you. Because without discipline, we don't learn. Without consequences, we become proud. And you see, love, real love, requires justice and mercy. Without either, it's not love, as any parent of any child will know full well. It's a love that God shows us, and it's a love of justice and mercy that calls us to extend to everyone else. One of my all-time verses, favourite verses, Hebrews 12, 11. 
And he says this, he says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. You see, discipline will hurt. It's meant to. In fact, it has to. But it promises a harvest of righteousness and peace if we yield to it. And the temptation will be to do the opposite. The temptation will be to tap out, to look for means of escaping it or alleviating its effects. The temptation is to opt for bitterness, to blame each other, to blame other people, to blame God, or just to indulge our self-pity. How do you respond when there are consequences of your sin? Do you deflect or distract, blame other people? Or do you engage with it? You see, in choosing to be trained by the discipline of God for our shortcomings, what we're saying is, God, I'm uncomfortable. It hurts. I feel ashamed. I'm angry. I'm afraid. But I accept that you know best. You see, David chose to be trained by it. And we see it so beautifully in the way he responds. So I'm going to pick up again in verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not. Nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. And this is the this is this is the beautiful part. Then David rose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. You see, at any point of affliction, at any point of resolution, regardless of whether it's the outcome we're hoping for or fearing, the only appropriate response is worship. Whenever a door closes, as hard as it is, praise should still be the response of our hearts. Worship should be the response of heartbreak. Because in doing that, like David did, he was saying, regardless of all that I've done wrong, of all, regardless of the consequence of my sin that you've, you've, you've taken away, my child. David is still saying, God, you're still good. And that's what faith is. Being able to say regardless, especially in light of all of our, that we don't deserve, God, you're still good. I still trust you. That's what it means to be trained by the discipline of God. And you see, as we finish, what we see in this passage is that forgiveness always precedes discipline. You see, God didn't punish David in anger. He disciplined him in love. 
from the place of shown mercy. He was disciplined. And it was something that David knew well. And that's why he could yield to the consequences, the heartbreaking consequences that God had handed down to him. And that's why instead of being bitter, David was able to worship. And you see, I am convinced, as David emerged from the most horrific moral failure, I'm convinced he will have known God better, not despite it, but because of it. You see, sin was an obstacle, but it's not a barrier. No matter what David had done, he found God's mercy and forgiveness to be even greater. And that is a principle deeply relevant for us. Your sin is an obstacle, but no barrier. God says, I know what you've done. I know what you do. I can work with this. And through these uncomfortable moments, I'm going to make you and train you to be more like my son. And your joy will be complete in those moments. And so despite his horrendous choices, David remained a man after God's own heart. And that same security and that same promise and hope is ours too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace to us, which we've no reason to demand. And Father, we acknowledge there is little mercy and grace in our world. And so, Father, we pray that you convict us individually of what the gospel means for us. And Father, that we as a church would be a people who communicate mercy to a world that desperately doesn't know how to do it. Father, we pray where we're not fully receiving your grace, where we have memories which haunt us, where we have regrets which niggle God. We pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, Father, that we would know something of your freedom which you're offering us so freely. Father, regardless of how we feel, we declare that your mercy is greater than our sin. And we're so grateful for that. Father, convict us of the righteousness we have in you. Teach us what it means to yield to your discipline. Lord, uncover those areas of our hearts that are not fully submitted to you. Father, we want to live lives that are fully exposed to truth and of grace. And Father, where we have hidden sin, Father, we pray you bring challenge to us. I pray you use the people in our lives to, to call it out where it needs it lovingly. Lord, we don't want to be a, a people who are stuck in unforgiveness. For ourselves or with other people, God, give us the courage to forgive because we know how much you've forgiven us. And Father, we acknowledge that that's a, a miracle of your Holy Spirit. So Father, right here, right now, God, as we are watching together, God, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd come and bring freedom to captive hearts. Lord, we acknowledge you, you are powerful enough to do that, despite all the stubbornness within us. Amen. So I think we're going to have... Um, a song and 
like we say, there's there's opportunity to be to be prayed with, and I'm pretty sure there's a button which you can click, and you'll be directed to the um, prayer coordinator. We'd love we'd love to pray with you. Like this stuff is so important. You know, there is so much that God wants to do and can do in lockdown in our hearts. Don't wait. You know, where there's unforgiveness, where you're stuck with stuff, let somebody else stand beside you. Like I found it so powerful when I've done it. Bye.